Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. Don sitting in the host chair today. Alexis isn't around. You know, I mentioned this before. You know, She's off and got engaged. So now she actually wants to have a personal life, even though she's still engaged in the podcast. So that leaves me working with my favorite show contributor, but no, no blood relation to me. That's Chris Capola. Chris, how are you doing today? Good. Yourself? Uh, I'm not going to complain because I'm sure our listeners listening to this eight months after the fact, if they happen to find us, don't want to hear the complaints. So I'm going to go with the fine. Everything's good. And I hope the same is true for you. So uh, our topic that we've chosen today, and this comes as Chris's suggestion. He mentioned this a couple of, I guess, maybe a couple of months back. We had we'd, yeah. we'd broached at this and it's it's timely. Uh, it's going to we're releasing here during the second week of August in 2021. And we're talking about an event that actually happened on August the 12th of 1941. And uh, we're going to see how this plays out as an interesting historical what if. Chris, it's your topic. So uh, we were also just talking as we we're rolling into this. This week and the following week in August of 41, stuff's happening around the world. But focusing in on our particular event for our episode today, Chris, give us a little of the background on the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives, August, August 12th, 1941, and why we want to spend some what-if time there. So basically the year before, in September 1940, uh, President Roosevelt and the U.S. Congress had passed the Selective Service and Training Act, which was the first ever peacetime draft in the United States. We had already had drafts during the U.S. Civil War, both sides had drafted, and we had already had conscription during the First World War, but the United States had never come to your door and invited and offered you a job, can we say it like that, um, during a time of peace. If you think about it being September 1940, Thinking about the legislative process, that whole bill, that whole thing was passed when we realized we couldn't count on France. I think it was Churchill who, you know, on the day Hitler was elected, said, thank God for the French army. Well, yeah, we can't count on them. So we need to get ourselves ready. Um, You know, you'll all often hear a... uh, Statistic quoted that in 1939, before this happened, when the war started, the United States had an army that was smaller than Romania. Um, yeah, Romania. So Romania. this is the United States kind of, in, you know, in September 1940, we said, okay, let's um, let's take this seriously. And And one of the other things, frankly... As part of it was, you know, I, I said, okay, the government shows up at your door and offers you a job, but that that part of it was, this is still the U.S. getting out of the Great Depression, and this was a way to get employment back up. Um, so, you know, in 1940, of course, you had, this was an election year, 
Um, interestingly enough, for all of the conspiracy theorists out there who think Roosevelt was just, you know, pulling strings and trying to get us into the war, the Republican Wendell Wilkie was also making very aggressive noises. So it, it, the war wasn't that big of an issue in, in, in 1940, but they did what's called a sunset provision. The United States Army would draft people for 12 months. At the end of that 12 months, um, if the we weren't at war, the people went, the um, troops went home. So 11 months later, you know, if anybody follows the federal government or has their pay related to the federal government or anything, they don't think ahead. Like you see so many shutdowns, all of these continuing resolutions. That is nothing new. Um, so 11 months before, you know, 600,000 troops are about to be sent home, about three-fourths of the entire army is about to walk away. Just saying that, it reminds me a little bit of um, Washington's continental uh, enlistments, where, okay, we need to change what's going on here because the army is about to walk away from us. Well, and the other element of that that I was thinking through, it's, it's not like they all came in, came in at staggered intervals, so you're staggering the exit. I mean, it's a it's almost binary. You have an army, you don't have an army. It was pretty, it was a steady increase, but you're right. It would have been a pretty big dip. Um, so in August of 1941, the Senate has taken takes up a bill to extend these uh, draftees enlistments for another 18 months. Basically keep them in the Army for another 18 months, and we'll see what happens after that. Uh, by the way, 18 months, let me just do some quick back-of-the-envelope math. 18 months from August would have put us into... Yeah, that would have put us into um, February of 43. We just won North Africa. Right. So, yeah. Um, so the bill is hotly contested. Again, we're not at war. Um, you know, when we were mentioning, we were talking about this off podcast, this isn't, this isn't a party line vote. This isn't the Republicans and the Demo, you know, the, Democrats on Roosevelt's side, the Republicans against it. Like I mentioned earlier, Wendell Wilkie, who was the Republican nominee for president, was pretty bellicose, was pretty on board with us getting involved, while at the same time, you had a lot of Democrats that for various reasons um, in many parts of the Northeast, in some of the urban centers, you had large Irish populations who would never ever be okay with fighting alongside the British under any right. circumstances. Um, you had just general pacifists. I'm thinking about kind of the America First movement. You had, and, and you know, one of the other things that came out in, in our research was uh, people just kind of being, dug, digging in their heels with Roosevelt and not, you know, if we don't, if we don't start pushing back, if we don't start creating some drama for him, he's just going to be here forever. Um, so what wound up happening is there was a vote on the night of August the 12th, and 
It was a roll call vote, meaning that they go down the rolls. They ask every House member, all 435, how do you vote? They go through it twice. The second go round, they ask only the people that had not previously voted. And at the end of the second roll call, it was 204 for, 201 against. As they announced this, one of the Democrats stood up and um, asked to be recognized. The Speaker of the House at this point, a man named Sam Rayburn, who's from some state. I, I forget what state he was actually from. That would um, be the that would be the great state of Texas, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm <laughs> I, I know Don, and I softball yeah. these in from time to time. <laughs> um. We we even have we even we even have we even have an artificial lake named after him. Really? Yeah. There you go. Um, recognizes a Democratic congressman who promptly changes his vote. This is this is one of the things you and I were talking about. Well, okay. Um, one of the Democratic congressmen just changed their vote. It's now two o three to two o two. And a whole bunch of other Democrats now are walking towards the microphone. So what did what did Sam Rayburn do, Don? He very quickly recognized and it took me a second. And I was telling Chris this also off podcast, registered parliamentarian, have a degree in political science. And when I was first reading the background material, I'm like, wait a second, what is he doing? And then as soon as Chris really mentioned it was, I'm like, oh, this makes perfect sense. He very quickly recognizes a Republican from Missouri. And who also wants to, in this case, I guess, also do it as well. But he makes a mistake. He makes a fatal. He makes a fatal parliamentary error in terms of how he does this. That we'll talk about what that is here in a second. But the reason he recognizes him is if he wants to change his vote, he has already voted in the negative. So the only way that he could make his changes back to the positive. So he wants to recognize, want to recognize somebody you've already lost because you don't have anything to lose, right? If they he's, make he's a known change. quantity. He's a known quantity. And so he does that. And then in the way uh, that that uh, I'm looking up here, the name of the of the representative now, uh, I, I'm going to make sure that I have it in front of me. The way that he asked for it, he, he makes the mistake in how he asks for it by then permitting Rayburn to actually announce the vote total, because once it's announced that changes under the parliamentary rules, what has to happen for somebody else to change their vote It's not just an additional canvassing under the same vote. And so, you know, one of the, one of the articles that I read, probably one of the better articles here is the Washington Post article actually from 1991 that sort of summarizes this on the day, but talks about the fact that, you know, Rayburn as speaker and longtime member of the House had a very solid knowledge of the rules of procedure as most as most of the leadership does in Congress, so much so that they could recognize this small this small thing. And so what what goes on to happen there is that shuts down the mass exodus of vote changes. And as a result, uh, I love the way the article sort of said it eventually sort of announces or maybe sort of just more or less mumbles <laughs> that the vote is over and a quick gavel and it's done. Um, thinking about, you know, the House at this point, what the hell? We say politics has gotten rancorous, but even in this de- in this debate, this debate being the 1941 draft debate, two Democrats got in a fist fight on the floor 
and left with bloody noses. So while some people may say he mumbled, I'm going to be perfectly honest. Once it became apparent to some people what he was doing, I don't know how he could have been heard. And you know, the other thing about this, Chris, that I was thinking about is we're, you know, we're setting up all the background here. And of course, we'll get into the what if, because that's what we do here on on um, on a fork in time, is that, you know, it's the first thing that pops into my head is thinking about what this looked like in the chamber. The only people that knew what this looked like in the chamber were the members of Congress, congressional staff, pages and others who have been in the chamber and those that were in the gallery. This is pre-C-SPAN, you know, so we're so accustomed now to seeing these things play out where, you know, this was, this would be now televised and known in all the way that, you know, the house has been now for what a long time, I guess that's probably been close to it's over 40 years now, I guess the proceedings of the house have actually been televised there or about. So I think C-SPAN is, a uh, is around the late seventies around 1980. Now I got to go and look that up because the internet knows, and now I need to know, but um, we're but just, just so accustomed- to throw it out there. Think about 1973. And what a shock to people actually watching just the Watergate hearings. The hearings. Yeah, to actually yeah. see what it was like, to actually see, you know, there's that old that old mm-hmm. adage in politics about, you know, watching the sausage being made kind mm-hmm. of thing. So this, you know, this is this is a sausage being made. Um, who who said that, by the way? Big Mark. <laughs> yeah. A Germany, yeah. a late 19th century Germany reference. Who would have thunk that would come from you, Chris? In 1979, by the way, for C-SPAN, I had to know, so now I know. But you know, so we we read about we read about this now from people who saw it or how it's been told. But had this been seen, it would have been you know a much probably bigger thing, you know. But that's not the way it worked. I can even think of being in the mid 80s. Uh, before the time that C-SPAN 2 comes along, because still in the early 80s, Senate proceedings are not televised. So you still had the what I call the courtroom reporter drawings on the evening news. You know, it was like talking about the debate, and here's a drawing of, you know, pick pick your senator. You know, here's here's uh, here's Senator Baker from Tennessee. You know, here, here, here artist rendering of him, because you can't actually see it, you know, what's going on there. Or and, even better. How how Americans today view the Supreme Court because they still don't allow in campus. Yeah, although you know e- even there now you have the audio recordings, which is still right. also something that's new. But that really struck me when we were talking about doing this as a topic is that you know you could get away with this. I mean, by the way, Sam Rayburn wasn't the first ever to tr- get away from yeah. get away with something with a quick gavel being the Speaker of the House. That's been done countless times in American history with with uh, members of both parties and all persuasions in doing so. But, you know, you're able you don't face the public ire of what this was. And when you really think about which is what we're going to talk about, I'm sure as we go down the alternate history path here, you know, the the impact of this on the public had already existed. You know, the number of folks who were already drafted and were thus in the army. And, of course, what's going to happen in just a few short months is going to radically change that. Um, And we're talking about what that means. I know that's where we're going to go. Part of what we're going to go with on what the what if would have been. But again, the fact that this is one of those things we read about, but we don't have pictures of it. We don't have, you know, video or in this moving picture film of it here, as the case might be, uh, because it was only under very rare instances like addresses and things like that, that, you know, you had any form of filming that was allowed inside the House chambers. That was that was the rarity. Right, right. So uh, I think it's interesting. So anything more you want to say about the setup here, Chris, before we go off and head down the what if? Not really. Let, let's, um, let's flip the switch and do it.
All right. Before we do that, we are just going to take a quick moment. You're not going to see a formal ad drop here, but since Chris participates in this, I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to do a mention here. There's this other podcast we've gotten started, Chris. It's called The Room Where It Happened. And I uh, just want to make, I uh, think most of our Fork and Time listeners now are probably like, yeah, Don, we know about it. We've heard about it. Quit talking about it. We but may have even heard an episode or two of it. You may have heard an episode or two because we have completed the, uh, what I call the inaugural or introductory episode, which sets things up. And then we've actually had room number one. Uh, and we're going to not actually number these by episodes, but by room numbers. So room number one was as it needed to be because the, the the podcast is sort of inspired by the the musical number from the Broadway musical Hamilton. And so we, we did the compromise of 1790. Chris, you were part of that recording along with a cast of several others. And so one of the things I'm most excited about that, and I'll ask you to comment on that, is it's a different format, obviously, than a what-if format. It's a, story, it's a history podcast, but it's not a, an alternate history podcast, although it's certainly fair game to speculate about historical what-ifs and counterfactuals in any it, historical discussion. I, I you think it was... Do. Adam Smith, who said, if you get two or three people of the same trade together, eventually their talk will turn to conspiracy of, you know, their trade. Right. So if you get, you know, and, and and let's be honest, the people that were involved in the podcast are people that are involved in a fork in time. So, yeah, if you get us in a room, eventually some of the counterfactuals are going to come out. And, and, and I am going to go back to Bismarck. This is going to happen. Yeah, we just every, know it will. Exactly. Uh, but what I really enjoy about what we're doing with that format there, Chris, and I, I know we've talked about this, I know you do as well, is it's intentionally designed to be where opinions are brought a little bit more than we often do here. Uh, and we look at a historical event from the perspective of what we call the room, which is the idea of where this thing happened. But that's really just a launching point to begin the discussion about whatever the topic is. And so our goal is to find interesting rooms uh, we probably will have to go back to the same room a couple of times because, you know, places like the chamber, like what we're talking about here. You know, the, or the, the Rayburn the, office building. Exactly. Or or the uh, or or the or the chambers of the United States House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Lots of things happen there. So we may go back there multiple times. But one of our goals is actually to look for some of more um, more obscure and interesting rooms that lead to interesting things that are there as well. And then the other thing about this podcast that I really enjoy because I've enjoyed meeting Chris through a fork in time and others that we've met. You've heard their names mentioned frequently is this is always intended to be a panel discussion. We had five on room number one. You know, we'll have at least that many, I think, for room number two, if not more. And it's once a month uh, is the expected frequency. So it's a longer form podcast as well, since we're not doing it as frequently. Mm -hmm. So we do encourage our Fork in Time listeners to, to check that out. Chris, do you have anything more you want to say about a for, a room, the room where it happened? Um, I think it was really, it was a good, fun experience. And one thing I, I really liked about it was getting so many people together and just the idea of um, being able to feed off each other. You know, somebody saying something and me reacting to it. It reminded me of some of the episodes we've done with Brant, uh, UI and Brant, and um, or Brant, clean that up. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, where we, you know, and and that interaction between each other is is a really good is 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 interesting. Um, do you want to tease what the next room is? I, I was going to do that. I was going to do that. So I will let you do that. Okay. Um, it's a garage. It's <laughs> and um, see, Donna, I'm laughing. I'm laughing. Our listeners have no idea why. Because, um, let me because, just tease this. Don, 
you know, all podcasts he and I have talked, we do, I do kind of tend to, he knows I come from certain, you know, opinions, but, but I, 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 I tend to be fair. Those gloves are coming off um, for this next one. I'm teasing it. I intend to be brutal. I intend to be vicious. Um, I have some very strong opinions on what happened in this garage. And um, you guys are going to have to tune in to hear about it. I'm going to leave it at that uh, because there's two interesting things I will say about that garage. This could be a band. It could be a band, right? They're garage bands. Uh, But this garage, even the story of the garage is probably mythical and overwrought at best and that to me probably will be something that we talk about during the episode because you may argue that whole elements of this mm-hmm. story are mythical and overwrought potentially so mm-hmm. uh i think we've teased it enough without giving it away if you want to know what it is by the way this is out there in the public domain because the way the format of the show sets up is at the end of each episode, we go ahead and set up what the topic is for the following episode. So if you don't know what we're talking about, all you need to do is go and listen to room number one. And I prefer you listen to all the way through, but it, but you can even skip to the end to find out what room number two is about. We'll actually be doing the recording here for room number two in the next week, week and a half, probably. So getting ready towards that. And then the last thing I'll mention, then we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming on a fork in time is, um, the other thing that we chose that format so that in the month between episodes, between rooms, uh, listeners can go to the website and they can actually participate in forums there and throw up discussion or throw up ideas or even throw themselves in the ring of saying, hey, get me on there. I have something to say about this. And I already know potentially that the image that I see behind Chris may be the cover image when we put the episode out on the uh, on the uh actually on the website as we do in, in the news feed, just because that will, when that goes on social media, that will draw attention. That'll stir the pot a bit. That'll, that, that'll shake the, shake the tree limbs and get some people in. Yeah. Yes. Some, something may fall not far from the tree. I'm going to leave it at that. All right. So uh, if you haven't, if you haven't checked out the room where it happened, uh, you'll find a link in the show notes to the feed there into episode, episode room number one, that, that episode, and you can catch up there. So we hope that you do. All right, turning our attention back to 1941, not a not a movie involving uh, a Belushi brother, in this case, John, but um, leading up to the events of World War II. And one of the things I just want to mention here, Chris, I think we've had this conversation before because we've had a number of episodes around World War II. You know, as an American, I, if somebody asks me, what are the dates of World War II? The first place I logically go in my head as an American wrongly so, is 1941 to 1945, because that's the American involvement in the war. Um, Actually, pinning what you want to call the date that starts the war gets a little bit trickier, depending on what you want to look at uh, the Empire of Japan's aggression in in Asia. I I will go ahead and say it is July of 1937, and I, I will dig in on that. It is July 1937. Yeah, and and then the other date you hear often is September one of 1939, which is the German, you know, German invasion of of Poland. Um, But one of the things that always gets me when thinking about this period of time that we're in right now, you know, when I hear 1941 to 1945, and generally speaking, it is obviously very late 1941, December seventh and after, and then it's 
the first part of 1945 for the victory in Europe, you know, it's really actually three and a half very intense years. If you look at the at the U.S. entry and the U.S. entry into the war until things are resolved in Europe. And I, you know, I think 1941, I don't often recognize that, you know, that was a great year in American baseball, for example. You know, the whole baseball season happened in mm-hmm. 1941 before this, all the stuff that's there, just the late in 1941 thing. But before we go down the historical what if path, I just want to mention this, Chris, because we talked about this, this event where the vote happens in the House. And so the, the selective service is retained, the draft is retained, is... Um, is in August of 1941. The war in Europe has been going on for some period of time. France has already fallen by this time. It, uh, the, 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 the bombing campaign, the Battle of Britain, has been is going on as well. Obviously, there's already been Japanese aggression in the Pacific. And some of the things that have happened there, as you mentioned, going back to 37 or before. Quick plug here for Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History. If you have not listened to um, his six, I guess it's six part, uh, mm-hmm. series and talk about your long form podcast. <laughs> Dan goes the long form podcast, but it's the, um, it, it talks specifically about, uh, Japan and, and, and the rise of mm-hmm. Japan. Uh, I've just lost the name of the, um, of the supernova, uh, in the supernova in the East. I knew it was East. I trying to remember what it was supernova in the East. Strongly recommend mm-hmm. that if you're, you're a student of history, particularly understanding a lot of what's going on there. And, and just the sixth episode was just released, which actually gets us up through the atomic bombings in, in the Pacific theater uh, relevant to the dates that we're here in early August sort of things, obviously as well. But Another great episode we did, too. Exactly. Ch- chasing all that back around, <laughs> though, the, 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 there was a reason I went through all of that, is that we don't think of the fact that there were things, other things going on necessarily at the same time. Much of them out of the sight of the public eye or di- that you look back and you go, well, of course, that was an important event. Mm. Uh, but what's what literally is happening at the same time that this boat is going down in Washington, the president of the United States is not in the city. So this is something else I find kind of interesting thinking about Rose, about what you were just talking um, before we did the plug about the modern media kind of C-SPAN and how everything is televised. But today there is no way you could have a paralyzed president one, a paralyzed president that the country did not know about. Right. Two, that you could have the president disappear for such an extended period of time. And it's not just what we're talking about. By the way, can I go ahead? and He's in Newfoundland. This is yeah. during the Atlantic Charter meetings with Great Britain, with Churchill. Kind of the beginning of the special relationship. Most people that study it kind of say it starts there. But then you also think about Tehran, Casablanca, Cairo, Yalta. The leader of the free world goes incommunicado for weeks at a time. And only after the fact do we get press footage of where he was. Right. And so he's away meeting with Churchill at this point. The United States is not formally in the war, although Lynn Lease has been going on. Some of the other things have been happening there. 
Uh, and then uh, as you and I were talking uh, off podcast, we were getting ready to record. It's next week, if we were back in 1941, that once Roosevelt is back in D.C., that he signs something which actually becomes a very important trigger to what's already been building. And what's that trigger, Chris? So if I could take a step back, I'll get to it. Okay. I'm going to do my own because we haven't even talked about one huge thing that is going on right now. The largest land invasion in the history of the world is all of six weeks old almost. Um, Operation Barbarossa. The Germans just invaded the Soviet Union. And when you think about what a you know huge change that was, this was still shaking things out. Um, and one of the effects in Japan was them realizing, you know what? We're not, we've decided we're not going north. You know, that the, 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 the strategy of do we go north against the Soviet Union or do we go south? Japan decides in this summer they cannot commit the ground forces to go north, so they're going south. They occupy southern Indochina, what is today Vietnam and Cambodia, in preparation for what they plan to do, which is launch naval invasions of the southern Pacific area resource zone, which is all of the oil and rubber of Malaysia, of modern day Indonesia and all of these very, very rich areas. So they take over the French colony. Again, this is still, this is Vichy France. So they're kind of friendly, but it's kind of a weird thing. They take over Southern Indochina. And in response to that, like you just said, August 18th, the United States embargoes all of their oil cuts off the spigot to them and that you know when you when you lay things out like this it feels a little bit like Europe in 1914 where you have this and this and this and everything happening in reaction to each other it's a very busy time right so yeah in fact it, it just crossed my head the famous book that talks about the lead up to uh, World War one the guns of August mm-hmm. we're just in a different August it's the, yes. it's 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 the it's the it's it's the paperwork of August 1941 that's leading up to where we're headed it, 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 or the butter of August I guess um yeah those were the guns this is the butter because it's more of the economic the 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 sinews of an economy not just the yeah yeah and so Again, now we're going to drift off into the what if. So what did happen in the real time, just to make it clear, I think all of our listeners are savvy enough, they know this. It's a very short, it's a very short skip and a jump from August to, to December. Eventually there is the um, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The U.S. enters the war. We've talked about this before, enters the war initially, um, you know, prepared to go to war with uh, Japan. Not clear that we would have declared war on Germany, even at this point, but Germany, uh, you know, for whatever reason, the, yeah, it says, yeah. you know, to, for, for their ally, Japan declares war on the United States, and now it's inevitable. And then, of course, by early 1942, all that we know of traditionally is World War II history is now, you know, set into motion in all kinds of ways. And we'll, we'll go on for the next three and a half years, uh, give or take, and then everything that flows after that. But if so when that happens, there is still a draft. 
there is still the ability to have armed forces and not like they will be once you have volunteers and the mm-hmm. response, obviously, you know, the, the other thing about the, the, the Pearl Harbor attack is that, you know, you wouldn't have had to institute a draft. People were lining up to, to, to go, but that takes time. It takes time to indoctrinate, bring in, train, equip all the things that happen. I mean, that's mm-hmm. to me, that's really the story of World War II is the fact that American victory or, or contributions to victory was inevitable. Just a question of how long it was going to take to ramp up, you know, it's the famous quote, about you, know, you all you've done is awaken a sleeping giant kind of thing, um, but if you get to this August twelfth date and you suddenly don't have that in let's, place, let's just say that let's actually just formally say what we what what's going to be the split here. A the person he called on wasn't just some random Republican; it was the minority leader, as I understand it. So let's say we have a minority leader that understands the rules of the House. I don't think that's a stretch at all, or more so a minority leader who has dealt with Sam Rayburn enough to know that if you come for the king, you better come correct. Right. Um, That you show up with your notes, you are ready, and when you make a motion, you make your proper motions in the proper order. So he makes a proper motion and, you know, literally two people change their votes. It goes down to defeat that now. It's not like overnight the United States Army disappears. Uh, The draft didn't really start until October 1940. That's when we had registered and actually started inducting people. So we've got a little bit of time. So actually. Really, when you look at when enlistments are going to start coming up, it's going to be November and December 1941 when these enlistments are up. But the first thing I thought about was how many of these people, how many of these young men that have just spent a year in the Army and are now being discharged are going to go home, have thanks, you know, let's assume, by the way, that everything else happens the way it does um these young men are going to be discharged they're going to go have a nice thanksgiving dinner with their families and a week later they're going to be in line to join the army again because when we're attacked they're coming back they're coming back into the service the one thing is this they're not coming back into cohesive units They're not coming back into the structure that had already existed. So now they're rebuilding. They're going to be put, they're they're treated as replacements. They're put in with green troops. And, you know, we've talked about this in other iterations. You made a point that, yes, the United States is involved for three-ish years. Um. It's November 42 before we land any troops in the European theater. And those troops we land in the European theater are National Guard. They're already, they're, they're existing, you know. Units that that have been in existence, that have trained together, that are, that are equipped and organized as units. If you look at what, think about the time frame and where did those people who lined up on December 8th first see action? 
Normandy. We spent about a year in actual, yeah, in, in actual fighting. Um, in, 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 intense, yeah, <laughs> incredible, incredibly Inten- valuable. Yeah. By the way, that that's that. You also had the Navy had been fighting for a long time. A lot of them joined the Air Corps. They had been in action, but and also, hey, let's remember the last episode I did, the Italian campaign. That was going on, but a lot of these green troops started in Normandy or in France. Right. Or actually many of the other uh, infantry troops that saw action, saw each other in, saw action in some form of fighting in the Pacific far before, mm-hmm. before D-Day and the, and, and the organized mm-hmm. large unit forces in the, in the, uh, in the European theater. Again, second plug, I probably got to put a note in to uh, put a, put a, a note, a, a a, a link in the in the show notes to to Carlin's site because I do strongly recommend to anyone Supernova in the East and some of Carlin's other stuff, but particularly even understanding uh, the island hopping campaigns. It's one of those things that I had knowledge of and I've seen footage of and I knew about, but to hear it described that way alters your understanding of what war is all about. And I know that there are a number of people who think of Carlin as almost glorifying because he's a military historian by, you know, sort of training the almost glorifying war. But he does a really good job there of talking about there's nothing glorious about what happened there or what happened in the European theater as well. Um, I I want to say also his series on the First World War. Yes. That is amazing as well. It's good, it's good yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. So so our, our departure here is the change of the vote. And so, Chris, what's the biggest alternative thing that you have you think happens as a result of uh, somebody makes a slightly better parliamentary form? This this vote gets undone, uh, and suddenly Rayburn's gone down in defeat. You don't have the draft. What does that really um, mean? Well, I want to talk about two things that may even that that are, that a lot of people don't know about their. The Louisiana and the Carolina maneuvers of 1941. Um, These were training exercises of distinct units conducted in Louisiana. The Louisiana maneuvers actually spread into Texas and into Arkansas. Uh, The Carolina maneuvers basically spread over an area I'm a little familiar with. Um, between North and South Carolina, just to the southeast of Charlotte. Um, And these were maneuvers where the United States set up almost trying to reenact the Battle of France in that you had two teams. For those of you that have seen that movie, The Dirty Dozen, where they're sitting there wearing the red and the blue armbands and they switch halfway through, that is kind of what's going on here. Um, and you had massive armies marching around the East Texas Hill Country. One side was playing a larger infantry army. One side was playing a more mechanized army. Um, first thing is, this is where George Patton first comes to notoriety. This is where Eisenhower comes to notoriety. This is where Bradley comes to notoriety. So the ability to have these large groups of men 
acting as one, not just as as a division, but interacting with each other and allowing the evaluation of leadership. I mean, when Eisenhower was appointed commander of operations in North Africa, how many people did he skip over? He, he was appointed over dozens of other generals because he had been given the chance to prove himself. And right. he had. And, and these two maneuvers in 1941, which were enabled by the fact that we had large enough reserves of people to play war, um, really helped, one, develop coordination between these groups, two, helped found the American Armored Corps, which had been non-existent before now, and three, helped identify a lot of names that are very familiar to Americans now and probably wouldn't have been had the Army not had the size to actually conduct realistic scale exercises. And, and um, I'm, I'm looking here at the note that relates to that. You know, that when they, they divided, around 400,000 troops participated in uh, uh, the Louisiana maneuvers. They divided them into, you know, two factions, a blue and a red army. And uh, I'm looking at the note, this is the Wikipedia note, you know, one of the two, one of the two countries, one of the two countries, the theoretical countries was composed of Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Missouri, and Kentucky. That's a large area. The other was Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. A total of 19 divisions were involved in this. That's not your, that's not, and I used to play paintball back in the day. That's not a, um, that's not a little romp in the woods paintball kind of thing. That's not even in modern terms, um, you know, the types of things that you see in exercises. Mm-hmm. This is a massive war game played yeah. out over a, a massive scale. Yes. Yes. And as you well point out, if you didn't have enough troops to do it at that scale, and I, I, you raised a point that I hadn't really thought about. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's about getting the troops ready, but it's about identifying who is capable of commanding those troops is, is what you actually get from that. That's what you learn from the practice or anything else is who's the better coach. The, the, one of the things I'm thinking about is I, I, I said a lot of them were designed to replicate the Battle of France. If you think about what happened there, the French were led by the, the same people that won World War I. That's why they were fighting the last war, because they were the exact they, they, same they literally people. Fought, they literally fought the last war. While the Germans um, were captains maybe majors in the last war, but what the Germans had done through the Spanish Civil War, through all of these other exercises that they had conducted is done exactly what you just said, which is weed out some of the chaff. And that is one thing I think the United States, you know, and I'm going to use the name of the person who did it. It was George Marshall. Um, He was appointed Army Chief of Staff on September 1st, 1939, which I maintain is not the beginning of World War II. But I'll at least concede that it's another of those really interesting things that just happened to, you know, I I don't know what the scheduler over at the War Department knew, but they knew something. Um, And one of the things he did, he he 
made any point. We're going to have these exercises and not Soviet style, but we're going to get, we're going to weed out the chaff. We, we are going to have a leadership cast here, a leader, a, an officer corps that can win, that is not going to have to learn on the job. I think one of the problems they identified from the from World War One is, if you look at how, you know, and we've talked about how the United States got involved in World War One, we were a little slow to get manpower over there. But even when we did it, we were throwing green people into those trenches. If you look at American casualties compared to German, British, or French at that time, uh, American's casualties were astronomical. I mean, you had anecdotal stories of doughboys in the trench being told by their sergeant, if you pay me $5, I'll show you how to use that rifle. <laughs> Which is a, a sign of a poorly trained army, perhaps. Yes, poorly trained and poorly led. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, we've, we've even talked about this occasionally. I know we're, we're going all over the place here, but that's fine. I like these episodes to a great degree. Even going back to the American Civil War, you know, the experience there we've talked before. And we, I know we'll end up having some episodes. We haven't visited that time frame in history as much on a fork in time as I know that we will. But you think about, you know, the Army of the Potomac, that, you know, the, the, the argument is that McClellan trained that army and trained that army well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just didn't know what he, he trained an army that was so pretty. He didn't want to go take it out and really use it. You it, know, it, it really, is he story. wanted to keep it in the mint condition box. That's yeah. basically what it was. It was a collectible to him. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, you have the other extreme of that. Again, we, we already mentioned him here once. We've done an episode on him for those mm-hmm. who only go back through the, through the, uh, through the archives of Fork and Time on Patton. Patton was certainly not afraid to use the instrument that he had. You would argue maybe to an extreme use of that instrument. But what really struck me as we were talking about, you know, these these exercises, which I'd had some familiarity with, and now I got to go do some more reading on it, Chris, because I was familiar with them. And now that I'm looking here at what I have on my screen, I keep going, keep wanting to go down the rabbit hole, uh, which is part of what I love about doing this podcast. I find all kinds of new rabbit holes I didn't even know existed. But like um, I said, the Carolina maneuvers happen 10 miles from where I grew up. Wow. I can only imagine if you dug into the, the, the Louisiana over into the yeah, Texas. The, the, yeah. Some of, some of the deaths were actually drowning in the Sabine river, mm-hmm. which is, you know, an hour and after I from here right. is, uh, but you know, the thing that always, I remember hearing this early on, I think it was good training for me historically was that, you know, they talked about one of Eisenhower's strengths was in logistics and, and the war was going to be, mm-hmm. yes, it was going to be fought by soldiers and bullets. All the, that's the way it happens. But the success of American forces were around their ability to logistically deliver men and materiel uh, when it needed to be. And that was that was the key, particularly when you're fighting a world war flung out over an entire theater, a global theater where logistics is crucial to everything that you do. You learned a lot of logistical stuff in the Louisiana and the Carolina maneuvers because you're doing it on enough of a scale that you have to think through supply issues, uh, all the things that relate to actually not just putting an army in the field, but but um, but serving an army that's in the field and maintaining an army in the field. Mm-hmm. That That's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, I want to say it was Manstein, one of the top, you know, great German field marshals on the Eastern Front who said, any idiot can command a, a panzer or a tank division. It takes a genius to supply one. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, again, I'm also struck by the thing I think about, you know, that's portrayed so well in the movie Patton, where, you know, 
what's the problem? Well, we, we're sort of running out of fuel. We, you're moving mm-hmm. so fast, we can't keep up with the supply lines to keep it, your keep your machines you fueled. Think about it. What does it what does a tank do? A tank does 35, 40 miles an hour open on a road if, if you're just driving it straight out. What does a deuce and a half do about that speed? So at some point, how do you keep getting new trucks up to the tank? Right. And so, again, the point being how this ties back to our original premise and where the alternate timeline jumps off here is that that was accelerated by several months, if not more, in terms of the capability to do those maneuvers and get ready to be effective in this war that you're now in, whether you wanted to be in or not. And also accelerated by hundreds of lies. Um. Yeah, those people that drowned did the Sabine. Sabine? Sabine. Sabine River. Um, that's a horrible training accident. There were horrible accidents that happened, you know, in the lead up to Normandy. But if the guy, if the referee p- taps you on the head and says you're dead, well, you're back in the next exercise. And that way we saved American lives by getting ready for it. Right. And and doing that prep before we did it for real. Right. And, and again, as you said, the, the those same young men would have shown back up December 8th out of out of, out of a sense of patriotic duty, but they would they would have shown up in a different way that they would have mm-hmm. been organized. And I think that's an easy thing to miss because we don't this is why I spend so much time there talking about the logistical aspects of wars. We, we don't we we tend to focus on battles and we don't focus on the things that led up to the battles or the logistics that were behind the scenes supporting the battles, unless something comes along and that becomes an issue during the battle. Then suddenly we pay attention to what do you mean you don't have enough fuel? What do you mean you don't have enough ammunition? What do you mean you can't do this? Well, because very often we don't. When it's present, you don't think about it. It's like an umpire to baseball game. When it's present, you don't think about it. When it's when suddenly you know, when it suddenly rears its head, you go, what was somebody not thinking here? You know, kind of thing. What's what's another key element of the alternate timeline, Chris? Um, Interestingly enough, I think at least in the Pacific, things go the way they wound up going. Um, If you look at American code-breaking capacity. If you look even at the United States Navy that fought at Midway, that's the amazing thing about the Pacific War. The turning point happened in June 1942. The force with which we won that battle had escaped Pearl Harbor. This was not... American industry had not had not had a chance to make itself felt. Um, Even into Guadalcanal, the 1st Marine Division landing, those were all troops in the forces on August 12th, 1941. The the first place I think it gets felt outside of this kind of meta-capacity world is North Africa. Um, I don't think the United States can do the torch landings when they do them. Um, 
I think that makes Montgomery's breakout from Alamein that much more difficult because those two things were were timed to coincide with each other. Right. That over in Egypt, Montgomery is going to attack out of there, due west. Um, the Allies, and it is the Allies, because at this point, still, there's a lot of British divisions landing in Morocco and in Algeria, driving west and trying to squeeze the German-Africa Corps between two of them. The Americans can't, I don't think, have much support to offer. And I don't know if they're not being pushed by, the, I don't think, the British land there. So instead of being squeezed together, what you could have is another replay of what had been happening in the Western desert, which is Montgomery advancing. But if you don't have people knocking on Rommel's back door, um, don't forget at one point, the British had almost taken all of Libya before Rommel showed up and just seesawed it back. So it had gone back and forth and there's nothing saying that that could not have been more of a back and forth fight than yeah. it wound up being. And to your point, torches, you know, it's in November of 42, it, you know, it, it is, it's 11, it's 11 months after, after Pearl Harbor before, as you say, there's really any noticeable American ground presence anywhere. And this and, is in our world where we've had a chance to build up right. this army. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, to me, it's just always that interesting thing. And when you, I, I, this is the mental image that I have. I tell people all the time, mm -hmm. you don't want to be inside of Don's head in the way that he thinks sometimes because it works in weird way. But I think of this as like the time slider of the war mm -hmm. to a degree. And so if you slide things back, at various points, the way that you get alignment of the various sliders and how they interplay with each other suddenly changes. And so, you know, my impression has always been that one of the important things about Torch, and, and we, we've talked about this also in a number of episodes, we got enough episodes now we can reference a number of mm -hmm. episodes, which is one of the interesting things that happens. But, you know, I think as Americans, we grow up with a, with a very glossed over understanding of the war on the Eastern Front in World War II. We don't yeah, know it is. We, we, we don't know it as, 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 as anywhere close to the level of detail, obviously, that we know where people that we know, either family members or relatives or just, you know, tr American troops in general were engaged. But if you don't have what's going on in Africa in late 42, you know, that has an impact on what's able to be happening on the Eastern front from, from the, from the German and, and, and the Axis perspective. Again, you change the alignment of all the sliders by adjusting the timeline and you get different interactions that may allow for different strategic decisions that may force different tactical situations. Mm, the first thing is you're absolutely right. November, 1942 is one of those busy time periods. Um, this is when Operation Neptune is launched. Um, Neptune and Uranus. These were the two Soviet operations to basically, I it, it, for those boxing fans out there, I guess the Stalin decided to rope-a-dope um, the Nazis and basically let them come in and fight in Stalingrad. Let all the best German troops keep coming in and fighting in Stalingrad because then the troops that are left protecting the flanks are Romanians. Um, we're really bashing Romania today. I don't know why. They're a wonderful people, but, you know. Um, 
and Italians and other troops whose you know hearts are not in it, who are not as well supplied as Germans. The Russians know this and just crash through those flanks and completely surround Stalingrad and you know wipe out an entire German army. That still happens. That is happening so concurrently with what we're talking about that the increased strategic options don't show up. Um, However, the next step on the Eastern Front, Citadel, I think, is affected. Citadel is the Battle of Kursk. Basically, the Eastern Front for the first two years had almost this pattern of if the sun's shining, the Germans are winning. If it's snowing, the Russians are winning. Yeah. Um, Citadel is in July. It's initially going to be in June, but they pushed back to July of 1943. And this is the German attempt to say, well, you know what? The sun's back out. Now we're going to win again. We lost all of these troops at Stalingrad, but we can take the offensive again. And they push it back because they want to bring in the King Tigers, the the massive tanks, all of this new equipment. And they attack, and it finally doesn't work. For the first time, the Soviets actually stop a German summer offensive. And the counterattack from that carries them to Berlin. Right. It's almost a content a continuous flow from there. Um, I think that might be an interesting thing because July 43, one, all of those troops they had to either deploy or had lost in in Tunisia and North Africa are now available to the Germans and all of that valuable equipment. And also, um, Italy's not about to surrender. Right. Um, So I think you could have had some more. You could have had more um, offensive capability at Kursk at Citadel. The Russians knew they were coming. The Russians were prepared for it, and I it, I don't know if I feel like that added capacity just means there's fewer tanks to beat at the Bulge. Um, and what I was thinking about this, you know. I think the biggest change, other, you know, we talked about these nerdy, detail-y things behind the scenes. I think we're meeting the Russians on the Rhine instead of the Oder because of that delay. Yeah. And we're lucky we're meeting them on the Rhine instead right, of and, into France. And, and and so that, you know, we've talked about this a number of times, you know, World War One sets up World War II, World War II establishes what becomes the cold. You know, these these mm-hmm. things are are linear and, and connected. And so you change you change where lines get drawn and where, where forces end up during the Second World War. In my mind, you know, Ger- Germany's defeat was inevitable. It was just a question of how it was going to happen and who was going to do it and the and the and the details of it. You know, the, the outcome was already the die was already cast. And where the line winds up being when it's over. Right, and that matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it was even, we've talked about this before, the recognition was taking place among uh, the Americans and the Brits 
as the war is drawing to a close about where that line that line matters. Mm-hmm. They were already recognizing that uh, it just would have would have happened in a very different way. I guess the place I want to go to ask this, I don't know if I believe this or not. Um, you know, you mentioned the conspiracy concept that, you know, Roosevelt's doing everything he can to maneuver the United yeah. States into war. You know, that that's 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 one of the, the things that's out there. Do you think that he felt any more? I'm just going to use two different words here that have slightly different meanings, more confident or more emboldened after August 12 of 41 that if I think he believed it was going to go down that path and wanted to put the United States, I think. He did have the best interest of the country, whether you like the way that he did it or whether you agree with how he did it. You know, generally speaking, do you think he felt emboldened or or confident as a result of knowing that, you know, I, I've got an army that's not going to be going away immediately. And I think this thing is much closer than people realize it is. You know, as you're signing that embargo mm-hmm. act, you realize you're starting to do the things that are probably going to lead to conflict somewhere, whether you recognize that was going to be a surprise attack on your naval base. That's, again, a conspiracy mm-hmm. argument of a whole different type. But do you think he was emboldened at all by – do you think it, it caused actions to go into place that would not have been as easily taken if suddenly uh, this vote had gone differently on April the, on August the 12th? I guess that's my question. Took me took me three minutes to ask the, the 32nd question there. Um I think FDR was a master politician. I don't even think a master politician like him can be emboldened by a one-vote win in the House. Um, I, I think he absolutely realized, okay, this is still a near-run thing. Not, not, not emboldened, just more sustained, I guess would be a, a good way of putting it, but not emboldened at all. Um Emboldened would have been if, for example, you know, he would have held the, by the way, large Democratic majority. If he would have been able to deliver the kind of votes, the kind of a party line vote that we would see today, you know, a large majority. If he would have been able to have, by the way, a significant number of Democrats not say, I agree with you, by the way, George Marshall making this argument, I agree with you. I'm just not going to give Roosevelt any more power. You had Democratic congressmen saying that. Right. That's not exactly the situation that gives you political capital that you feel like you could spend. Right. And, you know, the, the, it really did strike me as I read the Washington Post article about what you just described there. And, you know, Rayburn was known as being very effective for lobbying the, without being, you know, he, he was he was. The thing that is always you describe, and I think it's mentioned there in the Washington Post article is he was a um, and I'll, I'll link that in the show notes, by the way, because I think mm-hmm. it's a good place for somebody to go just to get some background here is that you know he was. He played fair when he lobbied for a position. You know, he he was he didn't try to strong arm you. Mm-hmm. He did get in your face. He did make it personal. In fact, he made it very personal. I really need you on this, and here's why. And so, yeah, a lot of people that were in fact that's how he, I think the vote passed is he was able to do enough of that. But it, again, the fact that it was <laughs> two hundred three to two hundred two, and it could have gone the other way, just tells you, as you pointed out, how divided this was. It wasn't along party lines. There were a number of different factions and fractions 
to what was going on here that was causing this to happen. And I think the other thing I'm very guilty of is I start looking at 1941 back through the prism of what happens after December 7th before what it looked like right up into December 6th. Mm -hmm. I think I'm very guilty of that. You know, you see it through the retrospect of, you know, of course, this was, that was inevitable. You know, all these things that are quote unquote inevitable. We've joked about that a number of times too, that are only inevitable when you're on this side of what eventually happened. Right. It could have what's, gone a different what's way. What's also really interesting is to think about the things that were inevitable before they happened that did not happen. Right. That's yeah. That's, that's <laughs> where it gets fun. Yeah. So um, again, I'm going to, ask if you have any other big themes here before we sort of draw it down in terms of what the alternative would have been. We've talked about a couple. Anything else super big that we missed, Chris? I mean, other than lack of knowledge of parliamentary procedure, basically putting at risk the future of post-war Western democracy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's other, good. Other than that's, that. That's a good hour's work. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> Chris, that's what we do here on a fork in time, right? Uh, I think I think the closing, the closing, um, you know, moral of the story is always consult your parliamentarian. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking of the person that popped into my head. Strangely enough, was not a member of the House. Was actually a, at one time was the longest serving member of the Senate, which was uh, Robert Byrd from West Virginia, mm -hmm. who had this incredibly legendary um, knowledge of the, 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 the rules of the Senate and the procedures of, you know, which are, again, mm -hmm. we're not talking about Robert's rules of order here. We're talking about parliamentary procedure. We're talking about very unique, convoluted, multi-hundred-year-old provisions and knowing the intricacies of how they interact. and. Um, you know, sometimes it comes down to somebody knowing what, you know, I don't know where, what paragraph 15 of subsection nine of article 12 of rule seven says. Not, you can only do knowing, do. not only knowing that, but just to point this out, having that presence of mind and having it so forward in your mind. That in the spur of the moment, I mean, right. because what, you know, what, what we talked about earlier of, okay, who do I recognize? Well, a lot of speakers, a lot of presiding officers would recognize the members of their own party. But the fact that Rayburn thought and said, let me recognize this other person who I kind of don't mind if he changes his vote. And then in the split instant to realize the opening that had been given to him. This isn't, this isn't something that's being communicated between two lawyers back and forth via letters. This is happening in real time right. and knowing it that well and being able to in the instant twist yeah. and, and, and exploit that. The, the, the thing that popped into my head, again, we talked about this sort of, you know, the ping pong ball thing that happens often in an episode. Well, I thought, you know, I think about what makes, um, you know, brilliant chess players is they mm -hmm. suddenly recognize a pattern on the board because they played so many times and know it so well that they 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 haven't they don't even have to think about the fact that made is 20 moves away. They just know this. Pat I, I know this pattern. I know this move is the response to this pattern. And now I'm good. I have the time now to play it out and do what I need to do. And, and the mental synapses and the skills are different 
playing a timed game where you're reacting like that versus playing by mail or something where you have the chance yeah. to do the study. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think, you know, it's, yeah, I was actually listening to some, uh, something else the other night that was uh, talking about, we've talked about this before. I know Brant's raised it every time the idea we've, every, I raise it more often mm -hmm. than anybody else here, you know, the great man of history versus, you mm -hmm. know, sort of the flow of history concept about what's there. You know, you don't think of somebody being, being sharp on their parliamentary procedure as being the the absolute attribute of a great man in history that creates a turning point in history. That's that's not your Alexander the Great kind of move, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing that's out there. But in this particular instance, it was huge. I, I'm, I'm really thinking about, I mean, when you have, there's, there's three House office and three Senate office buildings. Right. If you aren't have one of those named after you, you are <laughs> towards the pinnacle of your profession. And yet, how many of our listeners out there know who Sam, Sam Rayburn, Rayburn is, yeah. or Long, Russell, any of them? Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I, I certainly know who Sam Rayburn is because I'm a Texan and he is a Texan. But, you know, the, the first thing, you know, in Texas is there's a there's Lake Sam Rayburn, mm -hmm. you know, then maybe you learn about who this guy it's named for. You know, you don't have that. You don't have that luxury if you grow up in, you know, a foreign country like, you know, California or something like that. But uh, I say that because I know we don't have many listeners in California, too. So I feel OK saying that. But uh, uh, you're right. The fact that one of the one of the three one of the three buildings is named mm -hmm. after a guy. It says something about an era, but it also says something about who you are, that that's that, who's there. By the way, that's the other thing I find amazing, that if you look at the term of service of all of those people, they basically overlap between now now being, you know, 1940 up to Great Society era. All of them served during this time frame. So right. it's, it's amazing to think about all of those people in the Congress plying their trade at the same time yeah and, and and again if you also you recognize there you know how these things connect together we've talked about and probably will have a series of episodes on uh uh u.s presidents and other leaders and you know their near misses in warfare and how things could have happened there as well but particularly thinking about you know rayburn rayburn's role with respect to a young lyndon johnson is huge and uh you know how when that we connects started them. talking about politicians that were master of their body i i i thought of, when you were talking about bird i was thinking about johnson yeah. and there's a scene in um a movie called path to war about the the entry into vietnam where the actor playing lyndon johnson sits down and has his aide do a roll call vote read him every single member of the house and off the top of his head he can tell you how they're voting or whose side they're on or how we can convince this person yeah and more, more importantly the why so that if you need to leverage or change something there you understand the why and, and mm -hmm. what what to offer you know and again thinking back to again just you know lincoln and and how you know, how uh, various things happen with respect you know to lincoln there as well you know he he was he was a master at knowing how to play that political game, knowing who the who the who the politicians were and what their motivations were in the process.
and yet not appearing like a politician. And let, uh, that's that's the magic of it is uh, <laughs> is not not looking not looking like what you're very good at being. Right. That's how you uh, that that's how you know mastery. Well, Chris, as always, I, I enjoy our episodes. I enjoy these where we sort of have done them a little bit more. We didn't talk a lot before, so we would have the, the spontaneity during that. And I appreciate the ability that we've developed a rapport to do that. So, uh, Chris, thanks for, for taking a little bit of the time today for us to be able to, to record an episode. Good to have you back. And uh, as we get ready to close out here, I am going to point people to, I mentioned this when we talked a little bit about the room where it happened. And that's to our our website, www.aforkintimepodcast.com. There's resources there. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go and check out all of these past episodes that we referenced are all available there. So we'd encourage you to do that. That's also the home for where the room, where it happened. But uh, topic suggestions I actually got just an email in the last two days, Chris. I hadn't even posted them to a spreadsheet that we share to look at. As you uh, saw me reaching for the mouse to look for that. Yeah. <laughs> is uh, I, I have three new topical suggestions and one of them actually caused me to ask somebody who lived during that period of time. Uh, whether they knew anything about this, they're like, no, I'd never heard that before. So now I got to do a little research and uh, mm. I bring that up to say that our, our, our listeners raise topical ideas that would never spring to mind for us. And that's a good thing. So if you've got topical suggestions or feedback on this episode, if you want to say Don yeah. didn't know crap and Chris knew everything and, you know, vote for him. If we were putting a, a thumbs up, thumbs down, do that. We like the feedback. And again, we appreciate the community we built there. Also places for folks to uh, to connect with. And if you want to be part of the room where it happened or a part of this podcast, mm -hmm. you know, Chris reached out with a topical suggestion. I reached out and said, hey, you want to join me for that? He's like, sure. And what are we now? Nine, 10 episodes of Fork in Time later, maybe more. And uh, yeah, I actually, by, the, by, the, sure. by the way, on the website, there's a list there of, of episode guests. Now, Chris shows up a little bit differently now because he's mm -hmm. a regular contributor. But you can even know who's on various episodes there. We have a way to do that. And we need to lure some Brent Frost back here soon. Brent's been busy for about the last year. But uh, Brent was one of the early folks that joined us there. And I know he'll be part of an upcoming a room where it happened. So I don't have anything else to plug. Uh, except to say also, if you enjoy the show and you want to contribute financially, you can do that at our Patreon page. And we do still have the late Bronze Age Collapse series that's running over there. I actually have two more episodes that need some editing and some uploading there to get us into that. But uh, there's some special perks that are over there for our patrons on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash a fork in time. So I'm going to throw it to Chris one last time to see if he has any closing comments and uh, then we'll close it out from there. I, uh, I'm going to say this. I'm starting a notebook. I'm, I've opened a word file. I am starting to collect zingers for the next <laughs> a room where it happened. I am bringing the A game. He's bringing it his will A be game. Epic. He's Chris is bring <laughs> Chris is bringing his <clears throat> A game, but that's, that's neither here nor there. All right. Again, once again, we appreciate your time and your patronage here on the Fork in Time. And even though Alexis is not here, we're going to close it out the way that we always do, which our suggestion is if you happen upon that Fork in Time, Chris, any idea what a listener maybe ought to do? Take it. Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more and provide feedback by visiting our website at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Connect to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash a fork in time or follow us on Twitter at A-F-I-T podcast. If you want to support the show financially, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash a fork in time. 
We hope you will join us next time.